Amen. Please be seated. Please take the insert out of your bulletin. It has all the passages that I will refer you to. I'll have some others I will read, but please have this outline in front of you. It's a a different approach as this Advent season has brought the occasion of a, a more topical approach, and we are using Matthew's account of Jesus's birth in the first two chapters to extract some of those titles or designations for Christ and then pursuing their meaning more through the rest of Scripture. Um, Today is the last of those messages. The first was on the personal name for Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Yeshua, his personal name. Then Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, Jesus, God in the flesh, come to be with his people. Then, of course, last week, the King of the Jews, which really is shorthand for King of all kings. And more specifically, um, the King of the hearts of men and women and their souls, uh, the most powerful king in the universe. Then today, this final week of Advent, we look at one of the more uh, pronounced designations, more well-known designations, Jesus as the Son of God. I've chosen Matthew two thirteen through 15 as the beginning passage. It's actually listed on your insert towards the bottom, the second last verse, We'll come back to that later, but here now as I read that passage, it it introduces Jesus as the Son of God. So here, starting at verse 13, I'll read to verse 15. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take this child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Let's bow as I lead us in prayer. Lord, please deepen our understanding of Jesus as the Son of God. Through this study of your word, please expand our knowledge of you so that our worship would be more genuine and profound. Grant to us a greater understanding of you, our Heavenly Father, so that we might adore you more and obey you better. We rely upon the ministry of your Holy Spirit and your grace to us in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. One of the more prominent biblical designations for Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, Throughout the New Testament, this designation is repeated over and over again by Jesus himself. In fact, he is talking to the opposition, to the religious leaders who are trying to bring him up on charges. And he uses this designation for himself. In John 10, for instance, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. That's Jesus declaring it to the Jewish leaders. They knew what this meant. Jesus goes on, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Clearly, the designation, the Son of God, is connected to his being God. It's about his deity, being equal with the Father. Most of us here know that as connected to Jesus, the Son of God. Later in his life, just really capping off this understanding, as he's dying on the cross, 
the centurion looks up and says those very famed words. Truly, this man was the Son of God. In the book of Acts, you remember when Paul, who was Saul, is born again in commission. How is he described right after he comes to Christ? Acts 9. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. So we ask the question, what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, first of all, to be called the Son of God, we see from these passages, it's a clear reference at first to the deity of Jesus. Uh, To be the son of someone is to make them equal with that person. Jesus had no human father, so the designation as God's son is a reference to his being equal with God. Further, in terms of the Trinity, when we try to understand what it means, it helps us to understand the relationship between the three persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Being called the Son of God also indicates the great love for God the, that God the Father has for God the Son. It's in terms that we can understand, familial terms that we feel a bit on earth and understand, and it gives us a little bit of an inkling of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Helps us comprehend something. These are common, well-known explanations for the Son of God. I'll bet most people here, when they hear the Son of God, they know it connects to Jesus' deity, and that's pretty much where we leave it, And that's profound enough for sure. But this morning, as part of this series, I would like us to dig a little deeper, get below the surface of that. And that's a profound surface for sure. But I think there is more there in Scripture as you study this theme, this concept of the Son of God, how it appears in Scripture, how it's tied together thematically. The designation forms a bit of a thematic bond in the Bible's explanation of redemption. The term son of God reaches back to the first human being, Adam himself, and then unfolds to final fulfillment in Christ. So join me a bit, and you'll need that insert with you handy to follow along as we walk through this theme, this concept, son of God. And my hope and prayer for us is that knowing this deeper understanding will make it more profound when we think of Jesus as the son of God. Understanding the background of this language, this sonship language, this paternal language, this family language will help us have a greater appreciation for Jesus. Now first, let's consider Adam, the first human being. He was referred to as the Son of God, not just a Son of God, the Son of God. Now before we get there explicitly, recognize the language used in creation about Adam and you'll see how it has a family tone to it. In Genesis 1, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. There's parental language there, image and likeness and responsibility given. Image and likeness is what we think of when we think of a child. How many children look like their parents? Many. Um, If you knew my father, 
you would have no problem identifying me as his son. Um, when, if you're here early enough and you see Jacob Voss up here doing announcements, those of us who have been here long enough, who do you think of? Now, Jacob can grow a beard, we'll just say that, but otherwise him and Ben look just the same. Then you have Rudy Prinz. When you see Rudy, who do you think of? Now, there are multiple of you here who look like both your parents. I mean, you can't see the Gara boys without seeing both parents. You can't see uh, the Curry kids without recognizing both parents. Uh, it's amazing how they're an image and likeness of their parents in some way. This is that kind of language we would use to describe children. When you hear my oldest son talk, whose voice does it sound like? God made Adam in his image and likeness. It's a father-son type language. And furthermore, he gives Adam responsibility with the same kind of language. He says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and over the heavens and over the livestock and so on. There's responsibility given to his child, if you will. Now, the passage that comes first on the handout under Adam, the son of God, is Genesis 5, 1. It's now the generations of Adam, and I want you to see how it is worded and gather this parental, even paternal language. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when, he, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Do you see the parental paternal language about his son Seth related to him, the same language used about God creating Adam. And we know the story of Adam, though, don't we? He was promised fellowship with God, life eternal, but he sinned. Adam, being the first human, represented all of us. Though the son of God, he fell, and with him, all of us. He, as God's child, lost his position as son Because of sin. Now, in case you think this is a stretch, listen to the words that Luke gives, the next passage there on your insert. This is the generations that Luke unfolds at the beginning of his gospel account, starting at verse 37 of Luke 3. The son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is the Son of God, creation. The Son of God is Adam. And Luke lists generation after generation all the way back to Adam, who is Adam's father, God. Adam is designated as the Son of God by Luke. Adam is the representative of humankind. Adam was the Son of God in creation, but as we know, he fell and he was disowned. A dividing wall of separation came up. He lost his inheritance as a son. He did not bear the righteousness of God in his actions. Though he was created in God's image, he did not model that image in his works, and he fell into sin. The Son of God marred and disbarred. The Son of God, Adam, saw a dividing wall go up. Adam became a disowned son, and all his children after him. The term Son of God applied to Adam first. Where is it applied next? Now, there are Smaller places where this term is used, with angels in one place and a few other individuals in uh, certain situations. But if you were to look at this theme that unfolds, you would see the next major place that this term, the Son of God, appears is with the nation of Israel itself that God forms, that God conceives. 
He calls himself the father to Israel, a corporate Adam, if you will, a corporate representative. Israel referred to as God's son in the Old Testament. God spoke first to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, and then in 17, listen to the language God uses speaking to Abraham as he is developing or conceiving Israel, his son. In Genesis 17, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. There's parental language about the blessing God is now promising. Father-son language. Now, despite the regular failures in righteousness from Abraham, from Isaac, and from Jacob, God is faithful to what he promises here. He develops Israel into a massive people group. He even uses Egypt as a bit of an incubator for his people. Then it was time to fulfill his promises to Abraham using Moses to call them out of Egypt so that they might represent God, that they might manifest their father. In practical reality, they were enslaved in Egypt with no apparent identity but he identifies with them and he takes an orphaned people and makes them his children. He becomes their father. Just as a father gives his children everything that he has, God prospered Israel in such a way. When God was preparing to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, notice the words he spoke to Moses, and that's the next passage on your insert, under Israel, the son of God. It says in Exodus 4, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I will say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Israel is my son. It says it right there. God refers to Israel as his son. And why does God call Israel to himself this way? Verse 23 of that passage, let my son go that he may serve me. The purpose is so that Israel would manifest God to the world. Adam was created to worship and serve God. If he did this, he would have ongoing life. Israel was created to serve God. We see that unfold in the words that God uses through the book of Exodus as he is releasing them from their slavery. For one example, listen to Exodus 6, verse 6. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So so what was the obligation of Israel as God's child? To serve him, to walk with him. In Exodus 15, And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. What a father promising these blessings to his son Israel. They just need to follow him. He's done everything for them. They just need to follow him. Later in Deuteronomy, also written by Moses, same time period. 
Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 4. Keep them and do them, his statutes, his commandments. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him. That's parental language. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? What language of a father to a son? Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that I may, it may go well with you. This is just like a father telling his son something before he goes off on his own. So that your days would be long. Listen to this. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. In a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a father speaking to his son. The son is Israel. And think about it. God, God the Father, conceived Israel. God raised Israel. God rescued Israel. God healed Israel. God protected Israel. God sustained Israel. And God prospered Israel. That's what fathers do for their sons. And what were they called to do? They were called to be obedient, to listen to their father's voice and follow him, that he would be manifested, that people would look at them and say, we know whose God is their God. Look at them. Look at who they are and how they act. Obedience as God's son would secure blessings for them. Leviticus starts to give some of the results of not following Leviticus 26, then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. This is a father speaking discipline to his son who's not listening, who's wayward. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. This is a turning, this is a disowning now. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. God's language towards Israel was that of a father to a son. Now, we know what unfolds. The son turns away from the father. The son disowns his father. But God's promises are still there somewhere. How does this hold then? How does this work out? Israel's supposed to be God's son. But Adam was God's son, and he disobeyed, and he was disowned. Israel was God's son, and they disobeyed. And this tragedy is captured very vividly in the book of Hosea. In fact, you'll recognize these verses. It's the next one on your insert. It's also embodied in the Matthew text. We'll come back to that. But for now, look at the language, and you'll see this paternal language. In Hosea 11, 1 and 2, When Israel was my child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. You see what Hosea calls Israel, God's child, God's son. The Israelites were redeemed from Egypt to be God's faithful son. God called them from slavery so that they could be his obedient child, but instead they were his unfaithful child. This is tragic language about a son 
who is reverse disowning his father by turning to the Baals, turning to the idols. Based on their actions, they disowned their relationship with their father. Israel was God's wayward son now. Nowhere is the breakdown in the father-son relationship more sad and tragic than in the words captured by Jeremiah, the prophet, listed next. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Israel was God's son. But Israel was the way God was also going to remedy what was lost in Adam. We know this. This is his promise. But Adam failed. Israel failed. What about his promises? From Israel would come the second Adam to right what was wrong by the first Adam. And from Israel would come a faithful one. Corporate Israel is not faithful. But there was one Israelite who was the Son of God. J.K. Beale says, God had designed that the nation of Israel be a corporate national Adam who was to represent what true humanity should be like. Unfortunately, Israel proved to be unfaithful, just like Adam. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus, the Son of God, with the background that we have just looked at, Jesus is the Son of God. Look at the passage there listed. It's the one I read earlier. With, hopefully, new eyes. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Please notice, brothers and sisters, where do they go? They go to Egypt. This is important. So Jesus and family go to Egypt. And remain there till I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, do you notice the connection? That original pronouncing by Hosea, we would think that Israel is that son that he's calling out at the Exodus. And at that time, that may be true, but there was a greater fulfillment yet to come that Matthew sheds light on. Matthew takes the Hosea statement about Israel as God's son and applies it to Christ. Israel went to Egypt. God rescued them from Egypt, but they became unfaithful. Jesus went to Egypt. God called him from Egypt when Herod died, and he was faithful. Israel emerged from Egypt as a disobedient son. Jesus emerged from Egypt as the obedient son. Matthew's record gives clarity to Hosea's words. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Graham Goldsworthy says well, Matthew's interpretation of this passage, the Hosea passage, fulfilled in the return from Egypt of Jesus and his parents, may raise eyebrows since Hosea refers to an historical event, not a prophetic promise requiring fulfillment, so we think. Nevertheless, it does show that Matthew understands Jesus as the son who becomes the focus 
of the true and final exodus event from Egypt. In the way that Israel failed God, Jesus did not. In the way that Adam failed, Jesus did not. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus would not fail as God's Son. After his birth, he grew up as a faithful Jew. Every, every requirement listed in the Old Testament about what the Jews were supposed to do, they failed at, but Jesus succeeded at. For 30 years, he lived his life as a completely faithful Jew, the only one to ever live, the only one to deserve the promises of God to him given. All were conditional upon the obedience of Israel. They failed, except for one Israelite. So the true Israel is tied to anyone who is in Christ. He's the only one who earned what the Father promised. It's a rich picture, and I told you we'd be deeper than just that surface level, which is deep. But now when you think of Jesus as the Son of God, know its connections. After his 30th year on earth, Jesus began his public ministry. In the last three years of his life, he had proven himself to be the faithful Jew. Now he is the sacrifice that could be made, and it's public now in these years. The marker for his public ministry that shows this is true about him, that all this connects, happens when he's baptized. Jesus was not baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He was baptized to inaugurate his public ministry as a statement from God to say that he is the Son of God. In the same sense that Adam was but failed. The same sense Israel was but failed. But this is the Son of God. And there's something different about what God says here now. Listen to the words that are listed at his baptism. Matthew 3, verse 16, which is also listed there on the insert. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together on earth, or at least testifying on earth. And listen to the words. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That's all the difference for us. To be our representative, to know that the Father is well pleased with the Son of God. Adam failed as God's Son. Israel failed as God's Son. But Jesus is his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. Sometime later, well after Jesus began his public ministry, which was essentially his march to the cross, his public ministry was a final movement towards Jerusalem to fulfill the work of redemption for us, for those who are in Christ, for those who rest in Christ, the faithful son of God, resting in him, united with him, he goes to the cross. But before that time, just before that time, he reveals himself in a special way to his closest disciples, and we have it recorded in Matthew. Listen to what is said at his transfiguration. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? I hope that we have seen this more clearly through this study. Here's where it connects. What does it mean that you and I are called the sons and daughters of God? What does that mean now? God's delight is in Christ, his Son. Therefore, if you are in the Son, 
then God's delight is in you also because of Christ. God's assured and settled relationship with his well-pleasing son that will never change becomes his relationship with us as sons and daughters by adoption. To the degree that Jesus Christ is secure with the Father, how secure do you think that Jesus is with the Father? It's to that degree that you are secure with the Father. God will not cast out his Son. You are only as secure as Jesus is secure. You say, well, I don't always feel like it. It doesn't matter what you feel like. It's what God has done, God the Son. If you are in the Son, he will in no wise cast you out. We are now sons and daughters of God through Christ. And this is what Paul explodes with in his teaching by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, of course. In Galatians, the first epistle he wrote, most likely, he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, he says to us, and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Later, when he writes to the Ephesians, He, God, predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved not just a legal transaction that you're justified. Adoption is an affectionate, beloved transaction. And your security is wrapped up in Christ. That's why you can be secure. That's why you have assurance. It's not your performance that ever did anything for this. It's all Christ's performance. And if you're in Christ, that never changes. Jesus is the Son of God, the writer of Hebrews connecting all the Old Testament prophecy with the fulfillment found in Christ, puts it this way. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Writing to the Romans, Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation, Paul says, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. When I first became a believer, I didn't know much of the Bible. I'd heard portions of it growing up. I was at church every week, but there wasn't an emphasis on the text itself. I remember going to a a church camp that the Currys invited me to go to, and they'd sing these songs, kind of annoying a lot of the songs, to be honest. But the words were very memorable, and they were in this old English, which I'd never understood as well. And we'd sing these songs over and over again. And there's a song that gripped me as as a new believer, uh, wondering what this meant because security was always a problem I had. I never believed I really was. I mean, I believed in God, but I didn't feel any sense of salvation. I was wrapping it up in myself. I thought, okay, I believe in you, God. Now i got to go do stuff to make sure I'm really your child. And that's, I mean, that kind of thinking is torturous. And we sang a song that I heard in a certain style that I've never forgotten. 
Behold what manner of love the Father hath given unto us, that we would be called the sons of God. That's 1 John 3. I've since come to know verse 1. But verse 2 goes on. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. Who are you if you trust in Jesus? You are sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Father, behold your amazing love toward us through Christ, that you would unite us with the Son of God so that we would become the sons and daughters of God. All praise be unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn together to 217. We'll stand and sing the first five verses of All My Heart This Night Rejoices. <laughs>